Welcome. Welcome, lovely listeners, to another episode of the Soccer Capital Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Turner, and with me on the boards is our producer, Mason. How's things going today, Mason? Oh, I'm doing just great. I'm real excited because we have a guest today. Woo! Friend of the show, Sean Campbell. That's good. How are you doing today, Sean? Oh, I'm doing quite well. Really enjoyed that Gold Cup match over the weekend and just getting ready for MLS to pick back up. And uh, Sean's a welcome addition to the show, a fine soccer mind, uh, even if you discount the fact that he's a Sporting KC and Tottenham fan. I mean, there's only, there's no other club. And also, no, you got to pick the right North London club. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. So you're saying Pulisic did not. No, he did not. Although he did pick the lesser of the two evils. <laughs> Blue is always better than red, kids. Yes, yeah, so but let that be a lesson to all of you soccer fans and soccer players out there. Avoid Stan Crocky at all costs. So we got a big show, big show lined up for you today. We actually have some St. Louis City Soccer Club news to come your way. We're going to be covering the Gold Cup, especially the uh, finals with the USA over Mexico. And uh, remember, as always, go ahead and give the podcast a follow on your favorite podcast app. And please rate and review. It really does help the show. But uh, before we get into the St. Louis City news, uh, Sean, one thing that you said you wanted to talk about today was Gianluca Busio. Yes, yes. Good old Boose. Although he did get in a few games in the Gold Cup and even the League, Nations League earlier this summer, I don't, I don't think the, the national fans that don't follow SKC really got the full effect of Mr. Busio. Feels weird saying Mr. considering he's only 19 years old, <laughs> signed his first MLS contract when he was 15. And uh, he's he's really been an sh absolute show to watch it for the club. Um Fun fact, he moved to Kansas City when he was 14, hadn't even started high school yet. And he was looking at all these great clubs. To He started researching academies when he was 13 years old and picked Kansas City, of all places, to come play soccer. Yeah, that's the kind of decision well, you could only make if you're, uh, if you're looking just at soccer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Although, I'm trying to leave my bias out. I, I did go to school out there. But... Uh, Mr. Busio has been played everywhere on the pitch from left forward to center forward, even as now he's mainly as a CDM because for a while Sporting didn't have a solid option at center back. Um, but he's now playing that classic number six role and he's doing a fantastic job of it. I It's it's a wonder to watch. He's always effective with his passing. And just to pull up the numbers here real quick, I believe his passing percentage is 89.3%. Uh, just to give you an idea of, you know, the people that would be getting that kind of percentage. Think Michael Bradley when he's in his prime, you know, your center midfielders that are probably going to be the, the guy that all the play goes through. They're getting they're going to take the passes from from the back, send it forward, distribute the ball. Um, but even Michael Bradley's hovering right around the mid 80s. Most of your better passers in the MLS are hovering around the mid 80s right now. So. Say that's a pretty good number to have. Tad behind um, Darlington Nagby, but Nagby's unreal in his ball position. Oh, absolutely! Uh, it's it's un, it's it's just a wonder to watch him too. Love watching him. Don't like that he's on on the other team, but you know, gotta respect greatness when you see it, right? That's right. And a big thing I've always seen in Busio, especially for his age, 
is he has a very high soccer IQ. He's able to make these changes, go back to central defensive midfielder uh, when the team needs it, because Vermees trusts him at his young age to get it, to learn it, and play well. And that's a big point in his favor. Maybe the international game is just a hair too fast for him at this moment, but hey, he's gloriously young. He's got a big, big future ahead of him. Oh, yes, for sure. Um, I would say, though, I think this is a bit of a, a false idea or false look into who he really is as a player. Um, just because I remember when he first broke into the Sporting KC lineup, yes, he was effective at the MLS level, but he made a lot of mistakes. And usually it wasn't like he missed he missed a tackle or made a bad defensive play. It was more the timing was off. He didn't know where his teammates were. He wasn't reading the play as well. But as he got to know the guys he's going to be playing with day in and day out, he really started coming into his own. Uh, he's a very determined guy. He's been playing soccer since he was three years old. He'd go to all his older brother's practices. So he's running around practicing soccer with nine-year-olds. He's a student of the game, and he's always striving to be better. And I think the more caps he gets under the U.S., I think the better he's going to be in that center midfield position. And I don't, I can't think of anyone that's been an absolute go-to, have to include in every single lineup since really Michael Bradley in that spot. Uh, so it's nice to really have that again once he, you know, gets familiar with the guys and comes into his own there, too. And uh, we'll touch on this. Uh, there's, you know, he's got so much time to become an international star. Look at Kellen Acosta. Then we'll get into this later in the show. Kellen Acosta was a bright young thing, fell out of favor and then had a very good tournament. Usually international players don't come in their own till they're 24, 25, 26. Him at 19 like a lot of the players, both in the Nations League and the uh, Gold Cup, are so young, they haven't even begun to reach their peak yet. And it's that high ceiling that has us all so excited. Yeah, it's definitely definitely great to watch him, watch him grow and just to see how well he comes into his own, uh, even, at, even at MLS level. It's, it's night and day from that first game. Yeah, again, he was immediately effective on the field, but watching him move positions because of injury into a spot that we had a solid option. And he just immediately took to it, knew what he had to do, read the game. He sees it so much better, and it's much different than where we were playing him up at Central. He was playing CAM. He was attacking mid. He was going forward trying to score. Now he has to read the whole game and basically play that linchpin spot. But he really latched onto that well. And uh, interesting information. Love to hear it, though this is not a Gianluca Busio fan podcast. But staying on the topic of MLS, we do have some St. Louis City news uh, coming up here. A big one came from last Thursday's This is Silly with the Luligans podcast, in which they were able to get uh, sporting director Lutz Steel and chief experience officer Matt Sabak on the show. And uh, Lutz especially gave us some information that I think we were all very much looking forward to. Um, he was uh, big into the style of play that he wants the team to do. Talked about their organizational philosophy, how the academy is going to integrate vertically with the uh, first team. Uh, they're going to be going with a what he called a hungry young team with veterans in the mix. Uh, the style of play will be hardworking, 
uh, very what what's the term that he used? He said they're going to be uh, positively aggressive. Love that term. Very hardworking. Did mention the fact that uh, didn't want any loafing old international veterans coming in on the team that thinks MLS is a you know a retirement league. There's no place for them in. St. Louis City. I think all of the St. Louis City fans are going to be very happy to hear that coming out of the sporting director. Yeah, one thing he mentioned is like, uh, we're going to touch on this in a bit, but um, he said like, you know, they're still absolutely going to be looking for veterans, but veterans who still want to work, who still want to play hard, rather than the guys who come over here and just want to pick up one more paycheck. Um, He kind of described the play as like a Midwest philosophy, a Midwest ethos. You know, come here, you work hard, you you do your time, you fight and... Stay down to earth is one thing that he also said on that. So that's exciting. Uh, Interesting to know about the integration with the Academy. Uh, He did did have the hires. He did speak upon Andreas Schumacher, who's come on to be the uh, head coach of the team, the Academy team. Uh, Schumacher has a background as assistant coach at Hamburg and Stuttgart in the Bundesliga. And also coached the under-23s with Hamburg in the Bundesliga. He's got experience in bringing, developing young players and bringing them to the first team, as they're so keen on doing in the Bundesliga. And it sounds like uh, St. Louis City, they're, with the delay by one year with the pandemic, they're able to focus on, get the details right in the academy. And they're getting a huge head start considering most expansion teams. The academy is going to be ahead of the MLS team. He dropped some news that the MLS uh, Developmental League team, the Division Three team, will be playing next year, though Matt Sabak said that uh, where they'll be playing is yet to be announced. Yeah, that was really exciting to hear. Um, I guess I missed it on the podcast, but later on we're going to touch on when we went to the meet and greet, and that was where it really kind of stuck with me. That's like, oh, we're going to get to see Academy kids from St. Louis City start playing next year. That's really exciting. Yeah, helps fill that gap and <laughs> gives us some content to talk about here on the show as well for the following year. Uh, also, uh, despite Schumacher being international talent, he did hire a lot of uh, local coaches, including uh, St. Louis uh, goalkeeping legend Tim Kelly. And he said that it's very important to keep the local talent in the coaching staff while bringing in international talent. It's that mix that gives you different ideas. It helps you develop coaches and just starts on the basically he's got a very mid to long term view of this rather than looking at the short term. And he did mention that explicitly, that that is his personal philosophy. Uh, He has also talked about the delay and what it meant to him personally. He's been able to get out and see MLS matches in person, get to see the speed of play, how they work. It'll give him a chance to know a little bit more about the players. Because one of my big worries is anytime you bring in a sporting or slash technical director from Europe into MLS, they're just not up to speed with the league. They really don't have a feel for what kind of veterans you can add to the mix in your first season to make it not abject failure. Looking at you, FC Cincinnati, and uh, and get a good head start. The year has, while it's you know we're all excited to get going, it's been very good for the development of the team, and I hope that continues to. Proved to be true. Yeah. Uh, so, Sean, I I don't know if you heard of any of this beforehand. What are your thoughts on it? Honestly, I think it's 
I, I think it's a great thing that they brought in someone else from from outside, but also keeping local and people that are familiar with the league together. Like, like you said, you know, mixing of ideas isn't always a bad thing. It's a pretty good thing, especially when it comes to soccer. Um, getting another another look at it from another direction, you can see where someone's game might be better suited to a different position than what they've been playing their entire life. You can start developing them earlier. Um, I'm honestly very excited for this team to start playing and hearing that the academy is going to be, you know, you're going to run into the same style of play when you start. And once you hit first team, you know what you're doing. You know your spot. You know how you fit into this team. So you you just, you can focus more on getting out there, doing what you need to do, and then getting better at what you need to do. All in yeah, all, I'm gonna, very excited. Uh, you're going to be a lot like uh, those Mexican-American fans that root for Mexico and the U.S., except when they have to play each other and then they have to make a choice. <laughs> Living in St. Louis and be a sporting oh, yes. fan, you're going to have Team 1A and no, 1B, aren't you? Yeah, that's actually very true, and I've said that to Mason multiple times. I will gladly and openly root for uh, STL City, SC, um, whenever they're playing, but as soon as they go up against sporting, I'm sorry, I got to put the powder blue on. They're my first love. I fell in love with MLS when I was in college and got to see the game from the cauldron, but I will always root for my home team. I can't not root for St. Louis. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. But speaking of the cauldron from the, we went to the St. Louis against meetup at, uh, at Schlafly and we got some news on the sporter section. That's right. Uh, we're going to have uh, over 3,000 uh, standing, safe standing spots for supporters in the end at uh, City Stadium. Uh, that's a big thing. It's going to have the steepest incline in MLS. So the noise from the supporter section is going to be right there on the field. It's going to be loud. They've got uh, a roof on it that's going to hold in the sound. It looks like, from what I saw, is we were there at the Shaffley Top Room, basically across the street from the stadium under construction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a. Uh, I took a photo of a display that they had. I'll put this on. Uh, put it on Twitter from the uh, from the main account uh, before the show goes live. If you'd like to take a look at it, but um, yeah, we've got some details from that as well. Uh, an unbelievably large 250 feet plus of integrated TIFO support into the construction of the stadium. 257 feet. Yeah, it's massive. It's big. That's going to be Portland, Atlanta style TIFOs. And of course, the St. Luligans have a long history that they were doing large TIFOs even for St. Louis FC and USL. So there, there is the supporting culture already in St. Louis. It's going to start off the ground strong. Can't say anything about the play on the field yet, but it sounds like the organization is dotting I's and crossing T's and uh, has already integrated with supporters culture, which you can't say about every MLS team. Uh, Fine and Steel on the podcast also mentioned, the, talked about the head coach they'll be hiring and how the head coach will have to fit into the overall philosophy of the team, uh, which means that uh, that's probably going to limit them a little bit on uh, who they hire, but that means that they'll be structured and have a defined culture and style of play in the team. Some things that some certain teams in MLS lack. Some of the better teams always still have continuity across. They play the same way. Uh, especially looking at Red Bull New York, the things he was talking about, how they want to play hard, play as a unit, and an attacking style, one unit of team, really, given his German culture, 
also tells me about things like RB, RB Leisberg, especially Salzburg and um, New York Red Bulls. That's the style of games they play. And then on a Saturday night, Mason mentioned it, we did go down. The uh, St. Luligan supportive group did have a meet and greet at the Schlafly Tap Room, uh, inviting all supporters groups to come in. Uh, very excited to see that they're already up and running. They're already trying to, they're pushing some sort of integration between the supporters groups for, say, TIFOs, uh, chants, things like that, but while welcoming separate supporters groups into the fold, uh, something they've already started, even for City, this early in advance. Yeah, with uh, kind of like, I won't even say split, like split groups, because they're almost like kind of part of the Luligans, but groups like um, Show It Make Noise, which comes from the drum corps, the Thieves, which are the kind of like LGBT plus and like, you know, disabled advocacy group, you know, the already groups are, are starting up that are, you know, working with the hooligans who are kind of the big, the big dog in town, if, if so to say. And uh, Matt Sabeck also mentioned the supporters section will have three separate capo stands spread across the supporters section and a central drum platform, which the show up makes some noise podcast boys were very happy to hear. Oh, yeah. From the drum corps. Um, uh, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, Sean, you have some experience with the Luligans because they were part of the reason why you were able to get me so excited about soccer and what got me so excited about soccer as well. I, I was wondering if this story would come up. Um, yes, the, the it was the U.S. Open Cup match with where it was Saint S. It was STLFC against the Chicago Fire. And for those that don't know anything about uh, sporting Kansas City, the Fire are our number one rival, hands down. Like think Blues Blackhawks. It's like that. It is that intense. Um, so I took some of my cauldron knowledge. We weren't sitting with the Luligans. We were sitting a little further away, but I managed to get an entire section of more casual fans singing and chanting anti-fire chants because that's all I knew. I didn't know the Luligans chants, but uh, everyone had a really great time, even though there may have been some looks of shock and awe from a couple of the parents there, but <laughs> they were still singing with us and they, they had a great time. It was also wonderful to see a USL pro team hold one of the top MLS teams at the time in the fire to just one goal. And they really weren't holding back many of their great players. Although that was, I believe right after they signed Rooney, he did not, he didn't make an appearance that day, but it was pretty much a Chicago fire team as you'd expect to see. And STLFC did a great job. Glad I could get you into the game, Mason. <laughs> yeah, no, I had a ton of fun at that game. Uh, you definitely helped. And also seeing the Luligans and the kind of environment that they brought to the game really got me into it. Um, one thing to note about that STLFC squad is the next year in the U.S. Open Cup, which I didn't get to see that game, unfortunately, but they did beat the Chicago Flyer and went on to face Atlanta United, where they lost 1-0. So uh, it sounds like uh, the St. Luligans know how to give a good time. So one thing Mason and I found at the uh, meet and greet was we met a lot of good people. Uh, had a lot of good times, and it was just wonderful to be immersed in the St. Louis soccer culture. Oh, it was a ton of fun up there. Especially a uh, shout out to uh, Rebecca Justin and Tyler Kay, who shared a table with us and helped uh, the conversation and made the evening more enjoyable. Thank you all, and thank you to the St. Luligans for putting on an event, and thank you to Shafley as well. It was 
It was top notch. Yeah, it was first rate. It was major league. Yeah, it was a ton of fun. Um, yeah, great, great space at Schlafly as well. And it was nice to have some beers in public again. <laughs> and it was also nice to see Matt Sabeck out meeting all of us supporters, basically going around talking to just about anyone that uh, could corner in on his time. He was a busy man. It was good to see. Very exciting. If I and make... uh, sorry, go ahead, Sean. I was just going to say if I could make one one final comment on the supporter section going back a little bit it is very common to see subsections of a supporter section spring up you know over the course of time and they all especially I, again i'm going back to my cauldron experience uh they all have their own little head of the group that they have a, almost like a council where they all come together and really it's all about the main section but we all have our own special interests and so we have different things that are bringing different things to the table very common to see. I'm excited to see that already happening with, with City, um, just because that, that means it's already embedded in the culture. We're going to be ready for that first game. It's going to be loud. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be a great time. I think we're all ready for it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's one thing that the Lilligans also mentioned on their podcast episode was um, uh, after the interview, they mentioned they had gone up to Sporting Kansas City with uh, some people from the club and were hanging in. And, and local media. Yeah, that's all right. Also local media. But uh, they were hanging in and around the cauldron and uh, people from the club were taking notes on how things were done there. You know, what do we like from here? What can we improve on from here? The Luligans were doing the same thing. So taking a lot of notes from the cauldron. What do we like here? What can we make better? Because we're building it up from the ground up and we can we can start over. and We can integrate some of those you know changes that have happened over time at a place like, you know, at, uh, at Children's Mercy Park. Um, how can we build those right in? Yes, and uh, as this podcast goes forward, I look forward to uh, getting to know all the supporters groups, the leaders of them, get them on the podcast, let them all speak about what they what their plans are, what their purpose and aims is, and how they're all going to integrate together. We look forward to that as we go forward because, boy, we still have a lot of time until they start games. Yeah. You were saying, Sean. Yeah, um, sorry, I had to adjust my sensitivity um don't I we was, all in these times um <laughs> uh, i was going to say honestly there's there's really only maybe two other environments you want to learn from for your supporter section in the mls and one of them is portland the other one is seattle uh it's pretty well known across the rest of the league that those are the three of the toughest places to play no one likes going to Children's Mercy Park. There's a reason we call it the blue hell. Um, it looks like they weren't just taking notes on the supporter section either because the roof that I saw, the roof design, I think they may or may not have borrowed that from, from Children's Mercy Park. But again, when you're that close to one of the most, you know, just aggressively fan fans supporter sections, it's, you're going to go, you're going to take notes, you're going to have a good time. And that's... It's just great to see that this state's kind of coming together on that. Yeah, it's all exciting and uh, looking forward to it. There's still a lot of ways to go. Big soccer culture in St. Louis, like Portland and Seattle, there is a lot of embedded support of local teams, even if it's the kids' teams, even if it's academies. Uh, there is a lot in St. Louis. It's embedded in the city. It's going to be a big deal, uh, like I said. It's an expansion team. No idea what the play is going to be on the field the first year, but it doesn't matter. We'll go out and we'll yell. 
And uh, that wraps up our bit of uh, St. Louis City news. Uh, next, we're going to talk a little Gold Cup, mostly about that wonderful uh, U.S.-Mexico team. Yeah, but I think first we are going to take a break, and uh, we will come back to you with that shortly. See you on the other side. And welcome back from the break, everyone. This is the Soccer Capital Podcast, and we're going to talk about uh, well, the big game of the week, the second biggest game of the month, or some might think the biggest game of the last 40 days, as the USMNT took on Mexico in the 2021 Gold Cup Final. As you probably heard, if you haven't, uh, spoiler alert, US wins uh, on this. Uh, starting off the game, there was uh, changes to the US lineup. Uh, Eric Williamson came in. Uh, George Bello. As a quarterback came in, that was kind of a shock to everyone. Jossie Zardes got the start up top over Daryl DK, not a surprise. And Reggie Cannon did get the start. I guess he's back into fitness. Also, there was some uh, rumor that the cornerbacks, uh, Bynes and uh, Moore, who had played an awful lot of hard minutes, they needed, they were a little laggy, need a little break coming into this one. Could explain um, uh, Bello and Cannon uh, coming into the game to start here. So in the first half, there was a early moment of drama, as there has always been at the Gold Cup for the U.S. national team. Uh, Matt Turner gets a pass back. He just has a horrible touch, gives it away. Uh, then clatters into, I don't remember, was it Funes Mori? I don't remember. Uh, I don't have notes on that, but uh, he fumbles the ball, clatters into him. U.S. does clear it, but that was pretty nervy in the first couple of minutes. Yeah, that was, uh, <laughs> there's always got to be some drama in the early going, does there? Yeah, there has been almost every game in this tournament. Uh, and in the first half, Mexico were really dominant. They had full possession of the ball. U.S. were bunkered back in. They weren't able to do too many attacks. But the U.S. defense was stout. Uh, the best chance Mexico had in the first half was actually in the 11th minute as there was a uh Rodrigo Funes Mori, I butchered the first name, Funes Mori got onto a header. Uh, Turner was able to dive and make a great save. Probably Turner's best save of the tournament so far. It was really a, a good one. Uh, by far and away, Mexico's best chance of the first half. USA had the very, perhaps the best overall chance of the first half as there was a turnover uh, off of the press in the Mexico area. Uh, Legette was able to find Paul Areola in the box with only the goalkeeper to beat, and Areola, well, he scuffed the shot. Uh, he had him to beat. He didn't take a very good shot and put it off the outside of the post. Great opportunity missed. Uh, it'll be a theme of the contest. A lot of shots missed on both sides. Paul Areola was getting into good positions, and as his want in his career, uh, both with the national team and D.C. United, his finishing product just isn't quite advanced or developed as we thought it would be. And then uh, as we go along further, U.S. keep being pinned back, but the defense was stout. Uh, they were under the cosh, but they didn't seem really out of the game. They bought into the chaos. They were doing fine. Yeah, it was a, a bit more of a desperation on the uh, on the defense, but um, 
it, it, they still they held their own uh, unlike kind of in the Canada game where it seemed like they they had control of it um it seemed a little bit more desperation defense but still completely made everything they needed to make um I would like to say though I think that was kind of by design to be quite honest uh this Mexico side is a completely different side their midfield is is dominant they do a lot they play a lot of possession uh the US team's very malleable right now and I think the better way to come against to play against Mexico with the players we have is actually to not quite park the bus but take advantage on the counter instead of trying to take the game to the Mexico midfield where you will get shoved out you you're really not going to make much headway there so I think the game plan was to kind of weather the storm until we got the great chance and early on we had the great chances we just didn't capitalize yeah you said it exactly i remember uh after the game you and me were talking a little bit about it and yeah that's the exact phrasing that we used was they weathered the storm through the first half seemingly like by design like you said uh waiting for what was coming in the second half though uh i do also believe that mexico came out as you know all guns blazing because they were a little leggy they were a little tired. There wasn't a lot of rotation in the squad. And in addition, there's a lot of pressure under them to win this tournament from the coach, from the, especially from the media and the fan base. And I think they want to put the, uh, the killer blow in early on the U.S. And the U.S. withheld the blow. Uh, the kids came out and, yeah, it was chaotic. It didn't seem always cohesive. But they never seemed overmatched. They seemed to always cover for each other and take care of business. And that was a key. That's been a key the whole tournament is even if it's ugly, they look like they embrace the chaos, basically. And uh, it just the first half was that was the story of the first half. Mexico's coming at them. U.S. gets out on the counter. U.S. had their chances as much as Mexico, as much Mexico is getting shots, but they weren't clinical in front of goal. U.S. had their chances. They weren't clinical in front of goal. And we in the half at nil-nil. And uh, at halftime, neither team made any changes, but something happened at halftime. I don't know if it was in both changing rooms, just the U.S., but the U.S. came out much better, able to actually gain possession and formulate attacks. Uh, I don't know if uh, Mexico got tighter if Burhalter said something to inspire them or made a little tweak in the formation that I just couldn't see. But for some reason, the U.S. all of a sudden were much more in the game, just right out of the block in the second half. And both teams were going at it after coming out of the break. Both teams had great chances to score early on. And, uh, and the team held, the U.S. held against Mexico. Mexico also held against the U.S. Things had changed a little bit in the second half. But then in the 64th minute, the cavalry comes on for the U.S. team. Berhalter has made great subs at about this time in every game. And the ones that come in have always had a way of changing the game. Uh, we had Roldan coming in for Sebastian Leggett, uh, Sam Vines, and uh, Shaq Moore came in for Bellow and Cannon. Uh, it's a shift over in the center backs at that time. Uh, just the U.S. just was more lively and ready to go from that moment, as we've seen over and over and over. Yeah, it seems to be kind of the recurring theme of the whole tournament is that when the subs come on, everything, everybody kind of gets better, kind of almost regardless of the individual performance of whoever comes on. 
Yeah, that's been very true. You can't point at often at points at someone as they really dictated player took over the game. It just seemed to be the cohesiveness of the uh, whole team altogether. Yeah, I'd like to. I just, I just think that sometimes the attack, a very great tactical sub, whether they make an actual physical change on the game or not, it's it could be everything to the game. Even if the player doesn't touch the ball very much, like uh, if you think about it, great players like if they come off the bench, people, you have to change your formation for who's on the field now, and that can throw you off your rhythm. If you're off your rhythm in the 60th, 70th minute that you've been playing all game. Now you have to spend that next 15 minutes really getting into that new system. So sometimes even just putting someone on the field that doesn't do anything can really change everything. And uh, yeah, I've noticed Christian Roldan don't know exactly what he does to come in the game. But as soon as he steps on the field, it seems like everybody just takes a deep breath and gets a hold of themselves. Whether he's the coach on the field, dictating things, stepping on the ball, they just look at him. It's the same stuff he does at Seattle. You can't really pinpoint exactly what he does. He doesn't make all these great plays. He's just the glue guy. And uh, got a lot to talk about him later on, but he, he's been a key. And I think Burhalter also, this was the plan. He wanted info on the depth of his player, uh, his player pool heading into World Cup qualifying and really wanted uh, to get a feel of how these, these guys that are talented but maybe not the most talented where the depth's going to be, throw them to the fire. Let's see if they survive for two-thirds of the game and then throw on the cavalry to come in and try to win. It's a great plan for what he had plotted out for this Gold Cup. And to his credit, it worked out exactly like that. And a credit to the players, too. Don't forget that. Uh, U.S. fans tend to give too much credence or too much blame to the coach. Look at the players, too. That's something we don't do in U.S. culture, and we should. Uh, both both in overall in culture, or especially in soccer culture. I should add that. Oh, Sean, you remember the moment in the 72nd minute when uh, Hector Herrera went full karate kid to uh, Williamson's face and got only a yellow card? Do you remember that? Got something to say? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's almost like his coach told him to go out there and sweep the head. <laughs> sweep the head. But I, I'll, I'll, get, I'll get thrown out sweep the head i swear that had to be what he was yelling from that i i mean he was not not to be rude but they were probably speaking in spanish to kind of not let us know what their plans were because you know code and everything but he definitely definitely was probably saying sweep the head and why did uh, hector Herrera get uh concacaf uh, the gold cup player of the of the tournament because he is the most concacaf player in the tournament by far. <laughs> Didn't matter who's better, who's worse. He is the epitome of what CONCACAF represents. Absolutely. <laughs> I would like to add, I think he's also, has been for a little while now, kind of been the identity of the Mexico team. They're going to come at you. They're going to come at you hard. They're going to be some rough tackles, some rough plays. If you can weather that, I mean, you yeah. might win the game. You might draw. Who knows? But, uh, yeah, no, that Mexican side has always been a tough one, and I, I think they're going to be a, continue to be a tough one for a long time to come. And uh, the, the U.S.-Mexico rivalry, since things have gotten better, has just honed both teams. The U.S. team, especially these young kids, we wondered in the Nations League if that uh, A-team playing in Europe were going to be tough enough to play in CONCACAF. They showed it. These guys showed it. Uh, the mixture and things like uh, the CONCACAF uh, uh, 
Champions League, uh, all the interactions between MLS and uh, Mexico has given a lot of these players that don't have international experience on the MLS team a chance to play these games against Mexico and see what it takes to win at the very highest level, at least in this, this region. Another interesting moment was in the 74th minute when uh, the ball dropped in the Mexico box. Josh Zardes is there. He loses his footing. Uh, Matthew Hoppy has a great shot on goal, and somehow did it hit off of Zardes? Did uh, Talaveras, the uh, Mexican goalkeeper, save that shot with his back? Uh, back shot, and it's a beauty! Uh, what did you see on that one, Sean? I, I believe that I believe the term in uh, I think they I think I, I would steal a term from hockey and just say that the Mexican goalkeeper was just standing on his head. He was doing his best Dominic Kasha compression. Yeah, in this game, both goalkeepers were very good. That had a lot to do with the low scoring. They both saved some chances that probably should have gone in. Yeah. I'll tip my cap to both of them. This one in particular, though, seemed a lot like luck because <laughs> um, that was a scramble and he was literally going head over heels and Hoppy just happened to knock it right into his back. And I, I can't even really call that a desperation save because it doesn't seem like he really did it on purpose. It just kind of happened in the tangle. Eh, but No, he... that is definitely a desperation save. Oh, absolutely. That is, again, standing on his head. He was... Just standing on his head. He didn't know what he's doing. He's flailing around like a good goalkeeper should do. Try to make himself bigger. Try to block the shot. He made himself bigger. Yeah. And <laughs> blocked the shot. Yeah. The position he's in, I don't know if I could say he was really standing, but he certainly was on his head. <laughs> and uh, the rest of the half went pretty much full of chaos, full of fun. Not a lot of great play. Uh but all the way to the end, but we were in Las Vegas and it was U.S. and Mexico. So at the very end of the half, we did get a pitch invader, of, of course. course, and uh, got a couple of extra minutes of extra time. Not a lot. And it the 90 minutes end at it, nil nil. The U.S. ended the second half looking more and more like they're in the game. And they really got a shot when at the beginning, I don't think anybody really gave them a shot at outlasting Mexico for the entire 90. But yeah. they did. They at least drew them. Yeah. One little note is uh, right before the pitch invader, your man Busio comes on, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. Busio comes on. I guarantee you that was more so uh, knowing how Greg Berhalter coaches a little bit because, you know, Sporting played against Columbus for a long time, uh, being in that Eastern Conference for a bit. Uh, Greg's very smart with his, with his subs, and if he knows he's going extra time, he's going to put guys on that have fresh legs that he knows are going to do the job. And I think that was the play there, was trying to keep the game fresh because, again, Mexico came into this game very tired. They didn't have a lot of rotation, but uh, we were fully expecting to have a hard extra time. And as the game went on, our guys just seemed to stay fresh. We kept injecting new life when we could, and that game was really tilting. The field almost looked like it was slanted towards the end of that that uh, regulation time and into extra time. Yeah, and uh, uh, also I kept speaking about this on Twitter. The pressure, as it stayed scoreless, the pressure was building and building and building on those Mexican players. Uh, there in Vegas, the U.S. was playing with house money in this game. All the pressure, all the favorites, you know, the favorites in the betting houses was on Mexico in this game. The longer the U.S. stayed around, the more the pressure built on Mexico, and you could see it. And that pressure 
causes mental exhaustion as well as physical exhaustion. Yeah. So uh, we go into extra time. Uh, again, the hard play, the chaotic play, the uh, nobody really seeming to get too many passes off. And then when you did the defense on either side was there to snuff it out for the most part. Uh, really goes that way through the first half of extra time. And uh, it, it also into the second half of extra time. There's not a lot, just the same gameplay. And then two minutes from the end, in the 118th minute. The two uh, best players on the field connect and make it happen. Nikellen Acosta has a wonderful free kick into the box. Miles Robinson rises above and scores a goal. Oh, man, it was it was so good to see Acosta finally get his due. And especially for Robinson to be the one that knocks it home. Uh, you, you can't ask for better the, the best player on the field connecting with maybe the also best best player on the field. It beauty to see, beauty to see. Yeah, beautiful ball in, great header by Robinson, gets the job done, perfect. Ma, you love to see it. And uh, right after the goal, I definitely woke up my neighbors with the cheering. <laughs> <laughs> and right after the goal, uh, Burhalter sends on uh, Henry Kessler from the New England Revolution. Uh, Revolution. They're not a revelation. Uh, <laughs> who had replaced Walker Zimmerman when he got hurt. So he comes on the field and sees out the victory for the U.S. They are the overlords of CONCACAF. And no one can dispute it after this summer, can they, Sean? No, they cannot. Uh, this this win was very much a statement that says, hey, buddy, we're back. You know, it that win against Mexico, although it was not, a convincing win. We came in, I, again, I think, with the game plan of let Mexico tire themselves out by trying to come at us, and if we see a chance, go for it. Like, by all means, run up the field with the ball, run at guys, but it, it was definitely <clears throat> an emphatic, hey, we're the dog of this yard. We're the top dog in this yard. Yeah, it, Come at us. We're ready. And since the game's in Vegas, I've been known to play a little bit of uh, a poker myself, and in tournaments, you don't have to blow everybody off the table. You just got to hang in till the end and see if you can get the killer blow and win. And that's what the U.S. did this entirety. Take away the Martinique game. Every game was 1-0. The only person, the only team that could score on Matt Turner in this tournament was Martinique, not a member of FIFA. Yeah. And that was in, that was a penalty. Yeah. Matt Turner did not give up a goal in the run of play. Now, the one thing we didn't mention about this game, and it, it, I believe that it played a crucial role, is that is an NFL stadium in which they, like they do in Arizona, they roll the field out uh, to get sunlight. And so it's grass indoors. The field was narrow. What was it? 69 feet instead of 75 feet, which is standard. And Mexico, in their game plan, what they do is they play sideline to sideline, cut across the field stretch out the defense and exploit the spaces. That six extra feet might not seem like much, but what it does is the U.S. were able to tighten down their defense, and if you're beat, that's a little extra space. That's a half step, a quarter step for you to get in front and get a toe in front of the shot or to cut down on a passing angle. And I really think that uh, like the Jamaica game, in Dallas, where the rough field really harmed the U.S. on the attack because they're more technical and Jamaica's more on the counter, I believe this really worked in the U.S. favor here because Mexico couldn't exploit all that extra space to stretch out the U.S. defense. And 
uh, I don't know if it made a difference, but it really struck me that I thought that that could have been a big difference in the game. The narrow field was a big deal. I believe that the field was also a bit short, although I don't think that was nearly as big an issue. But the narrow field for sure seemed to me. At least it wasn't a trapezoid like Yankee Stadium in New York City FC play in uh, MLS. <laughs> the rhombus, oh, the rhombus as uh, that damn field. Roger Bennett of uh, Minute Blazers calls it the rhombus. What a great call. <laughs> Still better than turf. No one likes playing on turf. Uh, I'd rather play on turf than grass over turf. Looking at you, Dallas. Looking at the Pontiac Silverdome in the 94 World Cup. Oh, that was atrocious, if anyone else is old enough to remember that game. Well, the women can attest to how much nobody wants to play on turf, considering <laughs> how long they were still made to after the men <laughs> damn near went on strike. Yeah, right. but that's on Canada, not on us. Oh, wait, wait. Canada's going to be hosting the World Cup in 2026, too. Ugh. So that's... Uh, eh, we're friends with Canada. Ain't that right, bud? Sort of. <laughs> hey, bud. <laughs> yeah, you're right, bud. What's that all about? Eh? Ya hoser? Anyway. Someone get this guy a poppers. <laughs> yeah, you drinking Labatt's over there? <laughs> yes, sir. It's all about the Labatt's and the Englands. <laughs> yeah, speaking of the Gold Cup overall, Canada, though, uh, pay attention to them. They were out their two best players, and they made it into the semifinals, and Perhaps got a little hosed by the CONCACAF refs against Mexico, but they put in a good show. Still haven't learned how to win the big game yet, though. Yeah, we might touch on this at the end of the show when we have our closing thoughts. But um, right before we sat down to record, uh, CONCACAF did put out their uh, their top 11 and Tejon Buchanan was on that list. Oh, he should have been. Yeah, along with three Americans. But we'll touch on that later. If uh, Canada had gone to the final, I would have expected Tejon Buchanan to actually get the player of the tournament. He was outstanding, really put himself on display in this tournament. But Canada still can't win the big one. That's their next step. They got World Cup qualifying, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, actually, I think Canada being a really good young team to mix with the U.S. and Mexico, and Jamaica is now exploiting English players of Jamaican heritage that aren't making the national team, Uh Curacao's doing that with the Dutch League. We're getting CONCACAF's getting better and better. So I want to say part of the reason for the, these teams getting better and better is a lot of their guys are starting to play in bigger leagues. Like in MLS, they may come up in, a, in an academy up here and then get plucked for a smaller side over in Europe somewhere. They're playing more competitive against more competitive clubs instead of just in their home country. And there's more and more parity in the MLS every year. This team's This league's getting better every year we're producing better homegrown players and players from you know surrounding countries in CONCACAF so as a as a whole the confederation is going to be doing a lot better um we're going to be you're you're playing up against guys that come up through say Barcelona's academy and actually got invited to their preseason like Ilya at Sporting KC he almost made Barcelona's A team but he's playing in MLS this league's getting better and it's only going to help the international scene too and uh, with MLS, it's been a big boost for CONCACAF, absolutely. Uh, Costa Rica's rise into number three in CONCACAF really had to do with a lot of their players coming to MLS and getting that growth. Um, now it's really working for Jamaica in that regard as well. Uh, El Salvador even now plucking out, say, Alex Roldan, Christian's brother, 
because uh, he can't get a run at the USMT. Uh, so he goes down there. And he was a difference maker for a El Salvador team that was a very good team in this tournament. Yeah, uh, I mentioned that when we did our little rundown uh, when they lost 3-2 to, to Cutter. Uh, yeah, that El Salvador team was dangerous, and they did not mess around. And uh, CONCACAF's decision to go to the Gold Cup every two years, you know, here in America, we all poo-pooed that. That's silly. But that's not what the point was about. It was about give more games to the lower echelon teams in CONCACAF. And the minnows aren't quite the minnows they used to be. The Nations League is also kind of done to help them bring up their FIFA rankings and get more competitive games against people that they're against and set up a structure that way. Oh, there they is... definitely deserve the exposure in the games too. They definitely deserve it. They they work hard to get these players to to play in their own in their own countries, and they they deserve the right to be displayed on the national stage just like we do. Yeah, and I have to say, uh, Haiti impressed me. They they've impressed for a while. Uh, not the strongest team, but they're a strong and competitive team with a lot of great athletes and players in MLS. MLS has been a big deal. It's another big league in the Concacaf region. And it's also helped, uh, say, Venezuela and Ecuador. They're also exploiting that to gain themselves a little more uh, stature within uh, South America as well. So that's our feelings from the uh, Gold Cup final, uh, looking at some of the players from the game. And uh, all of them, of course, were good because it was victory. And, but some were gooder than others. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I know that when I'm trying to judge how good I am, I only want to be gooder. <laughs> yes, it's better be gooder than better. <laughs> but the good, oh, it's pretty easy. There's the uh, the first off the top three. Uh, we've got uh, Robinson, Acosta, and Turner. They were fantastic. Robinson was everywhere. Acosta was a destroyer in the midfield. And uh, Turner had the big saves. He was uh, just a stalwart and probably gave the uh, defense a whole lot of comfort to know that they could try this, try that, and do other things. Oh, yeah. Turner definitely deserved the Golden Glove. Definitely deserved every inch of that. Yep. Absolutely, he did. Uh, he has some issues with his distribution. That's well known. And they showed their heads. They showed their heads against Haiti, and they showed their heads. It, it, it came to a head also in the early moments of this game. And Burhalter is a preacher play out of the back, but I noticed in this tournament they didn't play out of the back as much, perhaps to put Turner in a better spot, suited his skill set better, because his shot-stopping ability was uh, needed. Not as much as it might seem, because the U.S. defense in front of him were actually quite good in snuffing out chances at the last minute, but Turner's play overall was very important. I also thought... Uh, Giassi Zardes coming in. He didn't score, didn't have a lot of chances, but uh, his runs, he put in a shift. He was impressive. It shows why he is still number one on the depth chart, because nobody can take it off. He shows up in spots. He's a fox in the box. He's not getting the distribution from the players in this tournament because they hadn't played together too well, but uh, he showed his stuff in this game. And, of course, Matthew Hoppy, just, he has his flaws. He's playing out of position. First time he's been with any national team, I believe, for the U.S. 
But here's a guy with the attitude for Conte. Attitude to win. And he didn't know the position, maybe not his positional situations he should be in. He didn't care. He tried to win. He was fun to watch. And, uh, like, the games that I, I remember him being, and he was a ton of fun to watch. Like, he seemed pretty, rather, he seemed pretty good as well. But, yeah, no, he's just fun. Now, looking at some of the players, I got out of the categories, not as good. Uh, didn't mean that they weren't good. Just means they weren't top tier. First of all, there's James Sands uh, playing in this in the full center back role, not a third center back like he does at NYCFC. Uh, he was uh, often faced up against uh, Funes Mori of Mexico, and he got a look at a really top-class striker with uh, fox-in-the-box movements, spins, turns. But Sands didn't put his head down, didn't give up. He kept fighting, getting a toe in, uh, bodying up, allowing people to cover, etc. Yeah, he... Uh... He was outmatched, but he stood his ground and, you know, did his job the best that he could, I thought. Uh, another one in this uh, category is uh, George Bello, the surprise starter. Had been in the tournament earlier. Uh, he's another teenager for Atlanta United. Actually, he had a pretty good showing, far better than I expected. Uh, I didn't hear him getting toasted. Uh, he showed up. He made a couple of good plays. He was there. He did his part like the rest of his team did. He was solid. Uh, actually, a lot better than I expected going in, hearing that he was going to start for sure. Another one that not as good, not top tier, was Eric Williamson. Uh, I can't say he was bad. Not at all. He was good. Uh, he still got some heavy touches occasionally, but uh, he's also a tough, tough guy. Took one of the face, too. Sean? Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Um, he had his moments of where he, you know, didn't look so great. But at the same time, he had a lot of moments where I looked. I was like, I completely, you know, he's he definitely deserves to be on this team. Like he had some flashes of great, but then kind of kind of not so much. He did take a couple of real nasty knocks. Um, but all in all, I think he had a, a decent enough showing. Um, I, I wanted more from him, really. But I mean, again, the, they may be classified as not as good, but that doesn't mean they were bad. Uh, but yeah, I completely agree on him. And uh, him getting the start and playing for a good chunk of this game uh, says something about Burhalter's coaching style. Uh, he perhaps doesn't rate Williamson as much as a soccer Twitter, go figure. Uh, and he didn't get a lot of playing time in the middle of the tournament, but come the game, he gets another run out. He did, and to Williamson's credit, he didn't get his head down, he must have kept fighting and showed Burhalter that he gave, had something to give in this game, or he'd have been like Jonathan Lewis and just forgotten that he was even on the roster. Uh, another one in this one was Reggie Cannon. I can't say Cannon wasn't good. Cannon is solid. Uh, uh, throughout the tournament, I've seen where he's come on. Of course, he was injured coming in, so his minutes were limited. But uh, he's, he did his job without notice. And any def defensive player that does their job without notice, then they must be doing a pretty good job. Uh, on the not on form, I'd say uh, I have to put Leggett and Areola. Uh, they just didn't seem up to it. Uh, Areola did seem up to it. He just, the finishing product isn't there. 
couple of bad passes trying a couple of things. You got something to say, Sean? Yeah. Um, when it comes to Legette and Mariola, um, I really hate playing against those guys in MLS, but that's because they're good. Um, so even on their off days, they're still getting those, those kinds of guys that if they're on the pitch, people are going to take notice. So even if they're off form, they're still doing what they do. They may not, like Ariel just couldn't, didn't have the finishing touch that day. Legette just couldn't get the final pass in. Um, they weren't on form, but again, I didn't see much of a really poor performance from anyone on this, on this team, but, but yeah, I agree. They were definitely some of the underperformers in this game for sure. Ariola does does all the hard work, does all the running. He got himself in great positions. He was working his guts off, but just when the crucial moment, that final pass or that shot, it doesn't come off. And that's been his knock, and it is the finest of margins on that. Uh, but him and Legette were veteran presence on the team. Uh, I'm not that tactical. Te- te- technical. I should say, uh, about watching this. What did Legette do off the ball? How did he put people in positions? Did he turn his body right to receive a pass to give an opening to somebody? These are the little things that me as a advanced, casual soccer fan may not pick up like some of the other uh, really technical observers or, let's say, particularly the coaching staff of the team. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I know looking at it, you know, being – vibes based like I was I thought that Legette was solid but he wasn't exceptional um he was putting in good through balls and stuff like that but you know even less than you I wasn't seeing him off the ball how much he was you know positioning himself I was seeing him on the ball where he wasn't making mistakes per se but you know he was you know, it was about 50 50 whether he was making good decisions like you know whether he was finishing on his good decisions or not uh, yeah, and uh, with Legit, I think with both these guys, it's not so much that they were bad. We just expected more. And uh, I still think they were valuable members of the uh, roster. Absolutely. Yeah, they definitely were. They're very important presences to have on the pitch for this game. Um, it's it's the little things that they do off the ball that most casual fans really don't see. Um, I'm still learning to see it more, more finely in the game. And, you know, I've been a fan of the game since I was six years old and playing they played the game up you know all the way through grade school and casually through high school um but seeing those things off the ball most American fans that I've seen of any sport really if you don't see a guy on the stat sheet you don't see them in the game and you think that they they're just bad they didn't have a great they didn't have a good game at all they had a bad game um which I think is part of the reason why we see so much saber metrics coming into the game but they were put a decent showing in they just didn't show up on the stat sheet like we wanted so it all in all was a bit underwhelming for most this actually uh what you just said comes back into our next point about the subs that came on and the point that we had made earlier about how the entire complex like complexion of the u.s team changed when those subs came on even though none of them had a big impact individually Uh, that's a really interesting point christian rolled on especially uh what does he bring to the team? He made that great cross in the Jamaican game that allowed Hoppy to get that header for the goal. Doesn't make a big impact, but boy, the second he stepped on the field, often with Zardas, the complexion of the U.S. team just seemed to change. And I can't put a, I can't put my finger on exactly what he does, other than just leadership. 
yeah, I, definitely sometimes just having that, that you know, the old guy in the locker room, when he hits the field, everyone knows, all right, things are going to be okay. Sometimes it's just a calming presence. Sometimes it's just a vibe. Um, it's And again, sometimes it could be, if it's an attacking player, they start drawing more defenders because they know, oh, this guy's dangerous. Let's, we got to watch him. Um, but yeah, it's sometimes it's just the fact that, oh, this number or this name, we know him. Once he's on the pitch, your side's like, yes, now we know, dude, we've got a strategy for when he's on. They don't know. They, they have to change their strategy now. And sometimes just the fact that it happened, the sub happened, is enough. Yeah, and Legit's that guy that comes up, has, has started every game. Has he started every game, both in the Nations League and Gold Cup? I mean, his, he has a track record of being a very good player for the national team. He's been a little off this summer, but his track record allows him that. And it's apparent that Burhalter wants him out there. Uh, he's also a glue guy like Roldan is. They just do little things to make the players around them better in some way or some fashion. Uh, the other subs, uh, the other subs, nobody really was outstanding. Nobody was really left outstanding in the field either. Uh, so everybody did their job. This really was a Gold Cup victory and taking home a trophy done by the entire team. And uh, I believe it's 20 of 23 players all came from MLS. Let's give MLS a little applause and stop digging on them, people, please. That's that's quite, please. That's quite impressive. I didn't know that. Yeah, very few. Uh, I'm not going to go through it now. It's been a long show. Yeah. <laughs> it's for a later show. Any other thoughts from you, Mason, or from Sean? Uh, well, one thing that I want to talk about, I mentioned this earlier in the show. Um, right before we sat down to record, CONCACAF and the Gold Cup put out their best 11 for the tournament. Um, I had mentioned that when we were had our little digression about Canada, that uh, Tejon View Canada made that list. Um, I don't want to go through the whole list right now, but uh, I do want to say three Americans made that list. Matt Turner. I can't imagine why. Uh Miles Robinson, again, can't imagine why. And Shaq Moore, who's actually kind of the surprise pick, I think. Says a little something about how hard it is to find a uh, attacking uh, cornerback that can actually not embarrass themselves on defense. It's uh, kind of a worldwide thing. Yeah, definitely hard to find yeah, a good right back. It is everywhere. And like the U.S. is extremely deep at right back and nobody stands out. And we'll... Find out a little bit more about that uh, roster depth uh, coming into the uh, World Cup qualifying in about a month. Gird your loins, everyone. And they'll be coming thick and fast when they do come in the World Cup qualifying. That's about it for what we've got today. I do want to thank uh, Sean Campbell for uh, coming on, sharing with us, doing a f having a fine job. Hope we'll hear from you sooner or later. But he'll be back on the show. Thanks for having me, everybody. Also, again, everyone, please uh, follow the podcast, subscribe, whatever your podcast provider asks for. Uh, it really helps, as well as a rate and review, if you will. That helps the show out a lot. Also, for anyone listening all the way to the end, uh, next week's show, we've got planned an interview with uh, Larry Henry Jr. of SBISoccer.com. 
He's the managing editor there. He'll be come on and talk about overall on the Gold Cup. So barring, you know, life getting in the way or technical difficulties, we're planning on that another big show in our step up for our Soccer Capital podcast. So thank you, lovely listeners, for listening to yet another episode. Thank you, Professor, Professor, Professor Mason, Producer Mason. And uh, thanks again. Yeah, love it. Love it. Doctor. 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 Hey. Doctor. <laughs> Doctor. <laughs> and thanks again to Sean Campbell for joining us. We really appreciate it. Brought a lot to the show. And uh, we will see you or we will hear from us next week on Wednesday. Bye for now.